Welcome to Game Changers Live from Miami, Florida. My name is Sergio Tijera. I'm your host. And each and every week, we bring you someone who has been a game changer in their field and who's touched the lives of thousands to get their perspective on their journey, their mindset, their struggles and successes so that we can inspire you on your journey. So let's get started right now. And welcome to another episode of Game Changers Live. My name is Sergio. We feature game changers who have been impactful in their field and doing some really exciting things. And I'm happy to say that now Game Changers is a top 2% podcast globally. So thank you so much for your support. You can catch us each and every week on LinkedIn, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, you name it, wherever you'd like to enjoy your content. You can find us here each and every week. And so my guest this week is Josh Barch, and he's the director, CEO, and chairman of Midasin Innovations Group. Uh, his entrepreneurial career took off in 2009 when he co-founded audiotranscriptionist.com and founded the Denver-based dispensary Doctor's Orders. Following these ventures, he founded a boutique investment firm that operated throughout the U.S. and Canadian markets. And in 2014, he co-founded Cannabase.io, the U.S.'s, the United States' most significant legal and sophisticated cannabis wholesale platform. He took the successful exits from audio transcriptionist, uh, actually transcriptionist, right? That's right. Doctors Orders and Cannabase.io and now founded Midasin uh, here. So welcome, my friend. Thank you for having me. And, you know, first and foremost, congratulations on your success being in the top 2%. That's, uh, that's a huge win. So congratulations. Thank you, man. Thank you. It's been a lot of a lot of hard work, but we're up to about sixty-five episodes now, and uh, it's it's great content from guys and and women like yourself um, around the country and around the world that's that's made this. So, uh, Josh, tell me a bit about your your background, kind of where you started off, because you're in a space now in that you know you've been on the cutting edge of stuff, right? With especially with the cannabis, and now into therapeutics and the the, the development and research of how psychedelics can help out with a lot of mental health issues. But to take me back to like, to, you know, your, your childhood, your, your kind of growing up, what was that like? Where what was that space like for you? Yeah, sure. So, so born and raised in uh, Denver, Colorado, just uh, about 15 minutes South of Denver, Colorado in a suburb. Um, you know, went to elementary school, middle school, high school and in, in, in the Denver area. Um, pretty traditional upbringing, uh, played sports, um, you know, went to school, et cetera. Ended up going to, to college um, at uh, Colorado State University in Fort Collins, uh, Colorado. And that's really kind of where I, I had my introduction into the entrepreneurial uh, world and, and founded, actually co-founded uh, my first company, which was called audiotranscriptionist.com. And really kind of, you know, the principle that I've looked at um, overall throughout my career is identifying problems, whether big or small, uh, and they've kind of gradually grown over, over uh, my time in, in business, but, you know, identify problems and then try to find a practical solution. Um, pretty simple concept, but, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's worked fairly well. So starting with audiotranscriptionist.com, um, it's kind of a funny story. I had a good friend who was an incredible computer programmer. Uh, we were living in the dorms. He had recently broke up with 
his uh, his girlfriend and and kind of was going through that depressive feel sorry for me uh, stage and he was playing online poker you know just excessively and to subrogate his losses he was typing for a company um, transcribing audio tapes for a fairly large company um, in the United States and they were paying him you know per minute of transcription you know I was like this has to be, you know, super inefficient. You're listening to an audio tape. There has to be a way to, to automate this. So, you know, can we create an algorithm that that automates this? And the answer was was yes. Um, and what it did, what it did is basically break it up into five minute pieces. There's um, an English influential website by the name of mturk.com. It's hosted by Amazon. We were able to just basically piecemeal it out to that website. Uh, it would get done for pennies on the dollar. It would come back, reconstruct itself, and then go through an editing software. And the turnaround time was incredibly fast, incredibly efficient. Needless to say, we launched audiotranscriptionist.com. Uh, he didn't have a non-compete with his, his previous company, so we were able to you know, essentially market to his existing companies and, and partners, which included you know, major universities, large churches, everything from that to husbands and wives that were arguing before they uh, would go to court and they needed the, the, the transcription um, done. So we ended up running that for a couple of years and then took, took a multi-million dollar exit, which was oh incredible and very, very lucky very early on. Um, after that, I segued into- so Hold on a second, hold on a second. Let me, let me ask you a question here because did you have a back? So, so what, what, what I love about this is that you saw a problem you weren't uh, necessarily the, the tech person that can solve it, Our but problem. you just went to go find somebody who knows how to do it in Amazon and then kind of combine it, right? And so yeah. that's a good point because a lot of people feel that if they're not the expert in that, in that space, then they have no business in it, right? They can't be successful. But you, you, know, you weren't a, a, a tech guy necessarily. You just kind of put the two together. Correct, and and it's actually it's actually my, my good college buddy that was a programmer, right? MTurk.com is a website that has at the time I haven't been on it in a long time, but at the time about three hundred thousand uh, people that are from English influential countries, primarily India, um, that will do computer programming, basically any sort of job that you need done for very very you know very low cost. So similar um, to like what Fiverr is now, or. or freelancer type work. Correct. Exactly. So, um, you know, we were able to outsource it, chop it up into small pieces in case one of the pieces came back, um, you know, improperly done. Then we weren't out a 60 minute piece. We we're only out a five minute piece and it was easy to, uh, to correct that one piece. So, um, but exactly what you're saying, you know, you don't need to know how to do it. You just need to identify the problem and find incredibly smart people. Um, that, that can accomplish the task with you and believe in kind of the, the same vision that you do. So, um, you know, that was, that was the first journey kind of into, into business and obviously was, um, you know, lucky and, and, and successful at the same time. Um, after that, I, I, I segued into the cannabis industry um, and went on to, to found a company by the name of Doctor's Orders in, in Denver, Colorado. I was actually issued um, and granted the third legal cannabis license um, medical cannabis license in, in the state. I was 22 years old at the time. So um, hold on a second, hold on a second. So how, how does that happen, right? Because the, yeah. you know, number one, did you have any experience in the in the cannabis space? What no. did you just see it coming? And you said, okay, I need to be in this uh, because you saw the wave coming. And how were you able to get a license at 22 without any other experience in the space? Yeah. So 
a little bit of the genesis. The answer to your question, first and foremost, no, I had no experience in retail. I had no experience in cannabis. I had no experience in really business at all uh, for that matter. So, um, you know, what, what ended up happening in Colorado kind of about, about a year before in 2008, um, there was this explosion of, of cannabis businesses in Colorado. And it was largely propelled by Obama going public and saying, listen, the federal government is not going to intervene with, with state programs. Colorado had kind of had a, a state program since 2000, but obviously nobody really had retail stores, um, right. et cetera. And there was really no actual you know, guidelines and an outline of how that business fundamentally was going to be regulated. So in 2009, Colorado took what I think is has proven to be the best approach. It was the first for-profit business structure that was run by the Department of Revenue in, in, in Colorado um, and really f set forth kind of the first guidelines and, and rudimentary outline of how something and how this industry should be regulated. Now that's obviously um, evolved significantly, but it's also been copied you know, throughout the, the nation and really kind of been, been used as, as a blueprint. But you had an explosion at one point in 2008, you had four to one dispensaries to Starbucks in, in the state of Colorado. Once they introduced these guidelines and kind of the requirements, you couldn't have felonies, you couldn't have any outstanding taxes, you had to be willing to basically open up your skirt and lift up your skirt and show them everything about you. And it was you know, much more heavily scrutinized than any other industry, right? They wanted to make sure that there was no bad players in the industry and that the people that were running these businesses were, were good actors, right? So luckily, at the, you know, at the time it's still, but um, I was 22, I didn't really have a significant business background or a lot of, a lot of um, you know, kind of preemptive, um, you know, issues or anything of that nature. So, um, you know, what they did was they, they, they recruited heavily um, kind of investigators with a variety of backgrounds, but largely from the gaming industry. And the first, um, the first application submittal was done at a place in a uh, called Commerce City in Colorado, and it was actually at the old dog tracks, which are not in use anymore. Right, they're a dog racing facility, and they're not in use. They had shut them down, and that was the first marijuana enforcement division's office, and that's where we submitted um, our applications. When I showed up, the application was 22 pages. When I showed up, you know, mine was relatively small. It was in a manila envelope, in a manila folder, and, and that was the extent of it. I show up, and there's people unloading U-Hauls of boxes and boxes and boxes of paperwork, right? And I'm like, okay, well, I obviously did this wrong, and I, <laughs> I don't think that I'm going to have a very good uh, chance of, of, of getting one of these licenses. So needless to say, went into my interview, submitted my paperwork. It went incredibly quickly. And then after that, you know, I, uh, I ended up winning the, the license. So that was, it was, a uh, you know, interesting experience for sure. But, you know, that was the very, very beginning of, of kind of that business. And there was just this huge evolution and ebbs and flows and ups and downs. And every week there's a new regulation that you have to invest or pivot and, you know, all these different things happening. And it was incredibly difficult uh, to navigate and, and kind of operate and meanwhile learn uh, kind of how to run these businesses as well, but so um, you were given you were given the license to grow and distribute to dispensaries. Yeah. So at the time, um, it, it was it was a vertically integrated license. So um, there was a seventy thirty 
vertical integration requirement that was eventually implemented. So you had to cultivate 70% of whatever you retail. So I was running a, a dispensary. I actually had a doctor's office as well. The dispensary was called doctor's orders. The doctor's office was called the emergency room. Um, and basically, you know, it was fully vertically integrated. We'd cultivate our own cannabis, we'd retail it, and we had a doctor that would, would write the cards um, on site and, and the recommendations on site as well. So, you know, kind of grew that business organically and started to, to expand throughout the, uh, the state of Colorado. Um, and then in 2014, Oregon started to open up as well. So I expanded the business out to Oregon and, and that's still an operating business out there as well. Um, and then early kind of 2014, January 2014 is the first implementation of um, recreational cannabis in, in the state of Colorado. And at that time when they were getting ready to implement it, the, the provision for 7030, the vertical integration requirement was eliminated and going to be eliminated. So for the first time you had standalone cultivations, standalone retails, and then you know standalone extraction companies as well, but no conduit or platform to connect the three together, right? For a cultivation, how do you market your product, et cetera. So we launched Cannabase um, with myself and um, a tech programmer that actually um, was now the husband at the time, the boyfriend of um, one of my longtime friends, Jen Gargado, who uh, um, you know was a graduate of NYU, incredibly smart, uh, smart, smart individual. And we got together and, and created um, this company, Cannabis. And basically, what the concept was is we want to be essentially kind of a crossover between a commodities exchange and an eBay, whereas you had a sophisticated platform that you could list product if you're a cultivator on the platform that would show you know to the retailers what your product was but at the same time was collecting analytics and the back end talked to the testing facilities so we had real-time data on um, yeast mold percentages of thc etc um, all of the required testing so they could see what your your product was um, but also to the point of sale system so you had real-time inventory levels with the hopes that eventually you could kind of have an ai component in there that would ping them okay you need this here's this available on the marketplace wow. but also a virtual negotiation as well so kind of a bid and an ask if you're on the stock market um, where you know you could virtually negotiate pricing and people could see the analytics. Uh, we ended up trademarking Canalytics as well, so we were you know probably the largest aggregator of, of data at the time. Um, we launched that and very quickly took about 85% of the, the wholesale market um, share in, in the state and then started to expand and it was acquired by a company by the name of Helix TCS very, very quickly, about 16 months after we, uh, we launched. So, yeah, so that was um, you know kind of the second uh, the second exit. So, and then to, to so, build. so hold on a second. You know, again, you you found a problem that wasn't being addressed. Does that come naturally to you, or is that something that you do you just kind of intentionally spend time on thinking about what problem can I solve, or does you know, that just hit you in the face? I think it comes pretty natural, right? It's like, okay, glaring problem. And me kind of, you know, having insights into what were the problems in the industry. And obviously, you know, the way that we were soliciting extra product when we needed it was literally like street drug dealing. It felt like you'd call the guy and you'd come by with this little pill case of samples. And you know what I mean? It was just incredibly inefficient. And if you wanted to legitimize an industry, you needed to, you know, take take steps like that and legitimize the industry, increase efficiencies, things of that nature. So, um, you know, for us, it was, it was just kind of a, 
a logical a logical move. Um, wow. So yeah, sold, sold that company, continued to build doctor's orders, ended up doing Colorado, uh, Oregon, Maryland, and Massachusetts, and then um, you know sold sold those businesses. Uh, founded a, a, a investment firm by the name of Evolutionary Ventures, just kind of um, you know largely started with my own money and then started you know raising additional money for outside companies and doing some consulting and then eventually um, you know partnered up with with my two co-founders of Midasen, which is Rob Roscoe um, and Damon Michaels and they had also come out of the cannabis space amongst other things um, Rob Roscoe is our, our chief science officer he's one of the leading geneticists I think in the world but um, you know and then and then Damon Michaels was uh, one of the executive level management and Rob was, was a lead scientist at a startup um, out of Colorado by the name of Ebu. So Ebu was doing um, the scientific approach to cannabis. So they created a patent portfolio of around, I think, 45 uh, either provisionals or pending patents, et cetera. And it, it was eventually acquired uh, by Canopy Growth for $429 million. So, I mean, they had a huge wow. exit um, in November of 2018. Um, and then, you know, we got together and kind of looked at this, this new re-emerging field of, of psychedelics. This is not new stuff. It's just kind of re-emerging right. due to, you know, regulatory um, allowment, if you will, and kind of, you know, more acceptance, more data coming back to the mainstream um, and said, you know, what does our approach need to be? And, and we founded, we founded Midasin. Wow. That's quite a story. Now, how old are you? I am 34. That's that's a hell of a, a resume and, and list of accomplishments for, for only being 34, yeah. my friend. So congratulations on your success. That's that's a that's a heck of a track record. A number of nuances. Anytime you're doing things like that, right? You, we've hit roadblocks. We've we've ran through challenging times. We've had problems to the biggest degree that you could ever imagine. You know, we've you're building businesses. You run out of money. You're doing this. It's the startups, and you know, eventually, uh, if you keep your head down and, and you stay focused on you know, what you're trying to accomplish. Sometimes you need to be nimble. Sometimes you need to pivot. But uh, ultimately, if you stay focused and work hard, you should uh, you should be fine. And that's, you know, that's, that's a great point that, that you're making right now, because the problem with being an entrepreneur is that there's no guidebook, right? There's no, there's no, uh, you know, there's no map as to kind of here's how you do it. You're going to have to kind of feel your way through it. And especially in such an, uh, a new, let's say, new industry where regulations, like you said, are coming out daily. You know, how do you, were, were there times where you just said, man, maybe we're in too deep with this, like we're, we should we should close down. Did, did that ever cross your mind or what? I mean, more than you'd ever know. So, you know, we'll go back to kind of like the cannabis story. So um, September 2012, um, at the time I had one store, one cultivation in the doctor's office. Um, we were located, the store was located across the street uh, from a university by the name of Regis University. During that time, the federal government started to, you know, kind of intervene with cannabis companies, not so much in Colorado because they really had a heavily you know, regulated industry, but predominantly in California. And what they're doing is, is looking at companies that were within a thousand feet of schools, but they had only targeted grade schools and elementary schools for the most part. Right. So they send out one letter to a company that was located to, and these are these are written letters from Eric Holder, okay? These are coming from the Attorney General. Um, and they sent out one letter to a company too close to 
the university and that just happened to be me. I was a lucky recipient of that. And basically, you know, that company at the time was doing about $600,000 a month in sales um, with excellent margins and obviously growing you know, exponentially. And I had the doctor's office directly next door that was doing well as well. Um, and I get this letter that says, you know, you have 45 days to either close down or move your location, which sounds fine. Okay, I'll move, just move to a place that's not so close. But with the zoning laws and requirements in Colorado, the hardest component of finding a, a, a place to locate is finding a viable location that's not too close to this, that's not too close to that, that's in the correct zoning. And a lot of them had been you know, gobbled up. So it was very, very hard to find a location, especially to kind of keep it in the vicinity where I could keep retention on the clientele that I had built, right? So right. that was another example of just like, holy crap, you know what I mean? What am I going to do? I have 45 days to completely uproot, find a new place, move my business, or the feds are gonna come shut me down. And you know, there was numerous times like that. That's a, the extreme example, but there's numerous times like that where you, know, oh, you have to pivot. So I ended up buying um, a dispensary that wasn't doing very well. It was operating at a 600 feet square feet and it was relatively close and they're doing not a lot of business. And I hugely overpaid for the business because I had to out of necessity and then ended up, you know, acquiring the, the strip mall that they, they operate in and drastically expanding the space and, and eventually built the business back up. But, you know, it was definitely kind of, uh, there's many instances like that where you, you, you run into a wall and you have to say, okay, and you quickly pivot and uh, be nimble and, and not give up, right? Not just say, okay, fine, throw in the towel. This is too much to, to handle. And I think a lot of people will do that. And that's really what yeah. separates, you know, a true entrepreneur and uh, people that just want to do, you know, traditional jobs, I guess. Yeah, the persistence and, and, and uh, the never give up attitude is so important in this space. So now tell me about Midasin. So this is a, this is a very important uh, topic because as as we all know because of the pandemic the mental health you know issues have surfaced uh have come to the surface in a, in a very big way and the the openness and willingness to admit that we have ptsd we have anxiety we have mental health issues uh is more prevalent now than ever and now and and the third component being like the reemergence, let's say of psychedelic uh therapeutics and so forth that were kind of stamped down for many years are now the society is open to it. So again, you're seeing, uh, you know, the wave coming, right? And you're right at the, uh, you know, at, at the precipice of that once again. So tell me about what you guys are doing with Midasin. Yeah, sure. So I appreciate it. And if you hear a little background noise, there's, uh, I apologize. And you're it, coming and to us from Puerto Rico, so that's all right. Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of, uh, a ton of, of sirens out the window. So hopefully they go away here in just a second. Um, so, you know, what we're doing at, at Midasin and kind of what Midasin's concept is, we're a biotechnology company kind of, again, looking at, at problems and looking at, you know, solutions. And then how do we take the initial um, kind of concept of, of psychedelics, which from the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, you know, showed significant promise. And then obviously reemerging has shown incredible promise as, um, you know, much safer, um, much healthier and, and much more efficacious solutions for a variety of different indications than what's currently available um, on the marketplace. And kind of taking those first generations, um, looking at, okay, those are great and we want to participate in that. And we are with our smoking succession um, lead indication and in our PTSD and the smoking succession is a partnership with Johns Hopkins. 
But then how do we take that first generation of molecule and look at you know, problems that are known with it, things like half-life controllability, you know, instead of a six to eight hour experience, that's too long. How do we reduce that down to a more manageable um, experience to a you know, one to two hour experience, making it much more scalable, much more um, applicable in kind of traditional already existing, you know, already existing infrastructure. So what we've done is, is kind of taken a stepwise approach um, to that and looked at our lead molecule, which is Myco001. It's a single molecule of, of purified psilocybin, uh, which is analogous to the synthetic. And we also have a Myco001 synthetic uh, single molecule of psilocybin. And we partnered with, with Johns Hopkins on smoking secession. Um, so so the on how, the, how the, the, the psychedelic can help people stop smoking. Correct. Okay. Um, so a little bit of the genesis of, of what got us interested in, in smoking secession. So um, a number of years back, Johns Hopkins uh, launched a, a pilot study looking at smokers. Um, these are lifelong smokers. Average smoke times was, was 31 years. Average quit attempts was over six. It was a small patient population, only 15 of them. Uh, but they underwent a treatment protocol of three macrodose sessions of psilocybin coupled with cognitive behavioral therapy. So, um, hold on, Josh, let's, let's, let's take a pause here a minute, man, because I want to make sure that we get these sirens out of the way. Cause, oh man, now they just stopped, right? <laughs> no, I muted it. I muted it. That's why it's, oh, okay. 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 It's a Christmas parade is what's going on. Okay? Oh, is it? Yeah, it is. So oh, wow. they, are, they are just about done. So if you want to, yeah, let's just hang out here and then, and then I'll go back and, and we'll start up again on, on the smoking piece and John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins. Yeah, like I said, I, uh, I apologize. I was like, there's some shit going down over there in Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, Puerto Ricans, they, and your wife will probably attest to this, you know, they, uh, they start celebrating. It's December 1st. They start celebrating Christmas on December 1st. So this is like a daily occurrence. The, uh, oh, my the God. brains come through. So. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, no, same, we're good now. Though. We are good now. But I apologize about that. That was no, crazy. that's cool, man. You can't control that. All right, cool. So let's pick it back up. So I'm going to ask the, the the question again um, about therapeutics and John Hopkins and, and the smoking session. You take it from there. Okay. All right, take two. All right. So what we're talking about is is using therapeutics to help people to stop smoking, right? Yeah, so absolutely. So a little bit of the genesis of, of kind of what got us interested in, in smoking secession originally. Um, so Johns Hopkins, um, led by an uh, individual by the name of Dr. Matt Johnson, launched a, a pilot study a number of years ago, um, looking at a patient population of 15. These are lifelong smokers. Average smoke time was 31 years. Average quit attempt was a median of six. Um, and they underwent a treatment regimen of three macrodose sessions of psilocybin uh, coupled with surrounding cognitive behavioral therapy. So cognitive behavioral therapy, both pre-experience, during, and then, and then post. Um, and what they saw was at six months, 80% of them were completely abstinent from smoking. At 12 months, 67% remained completely abstinent from smoking. And at two and a half years, 60% complete remain completely wow. so mind you it's a small patient population but nonetheless you know you when you interview these individuals the experience was so profound 
that most of them never even thought about touching another cigarette, right? It gave them kind of a deep introspective look at what smoking really is doing to people. It kills 480,000 people in the United States alone annually, right? One in five die of smoking or smoking related causes, right? So this is a huge problem. All the other addictions combined are a little blip on the scale compared to what smoking's killing, but it's just not widely discussed for tobacco lobbying issues and a number of different issues, I think. But now for the for those out there who have never tried psilocybin in any kind of form or, or, or degree, explain why these smokers, you know, did they say why they they stopped? I mean, what was the that game changing moment with them and their journey, you know, and that experience that said, oh, okay, I don't need this anymore. Yeah, so I think this is kind of more broadly adaptive to a number of indications, and it's the same kind of principle. Um, you know, definitely for addiction, we believe that this is the tip of the iceberg and can be utilized for all other addictions. But basically what's happening is you have preparatory meetings, kind of preparing the individuals uh, for their experience. And during the, those meetings, kind of, you know, on a high level, what you're doing is the first meeting between psychotherapist and, and, and patient is building rapport. The second is kind of whatever the substance in this case smoking is, you know, tell me all the reasons why you like to smoke. The third is, you know, why would you like to quit? And then the fourth is kind of, you know, I don't want to say doomsday, but really kind of letting them understand the perils of smoking that they don't see on the exterior, right? So, you know, smoking is a, is a unique um, addiction, whereas the vast majority of the smokers can live completely traditionally normal lives, right? It doesn't ruin your job. It doesn't ruin your family. It doesn't ruin you financially. Um, so it's, it's a raw addiction, right? But they know it's killing them, but they still do it, right? Right. So on that, that last meeting, right, before their experience, you're really kind of embedding in, into their head, you know, this the statistics around it. Again, it kills one in five people in the United States alone, 480,000, you know, almost 100,000 of that 480,000 on secondhand smoke. So you're not just killing yourself, you're killing other people. Sure. Amongst other things, you know, your family needs you, et cetera. And when they undergo this, this experience, which is deeply introspective, right, you're seeing kind of yourself from uh, aerial view almost, and it, it, it's really taken that ego and kind of that blocker off of it. You know, from a neurological standpoint, what's happening is all the barriers in your brain drop. And now for the first time, really, your brain is all communicating as one, right? So you have this incredible experience that you go through, and many of them can be challenging, but it's a really deep realization of what you're actually doing, not only to yourself, other people, right? And when they come out of it, they also have this neuroplasticity. So um, Yale just put out put out a study in, in mouse models showing that there's neuron outgrowth for you know a month after a single experience of, of psilocybin. And what that means is wow. you have brand new brain connections that are unadulterated, that are non-programmed to traditional kind of way of thinking that you can then, with the proper therapy, you know, program to kind of look at things and and train them to kind of perceive things in a positive light, I guess, if you will, or a different light, right? Whether that's PTSD and you have, you know, people that have gone through incredibly traumatic experiences or war veterans that I should have saved my friend and the whole time they're, I, could, I should have saved him, I shouldn't save him. Well, if I saved him, you know, I, I, my whole other platoon would have would have died, including myself. So if you can, cha you know, change the way that they think, it can be incredibly powerful, not just short term, but in perpetuity, right? This is a, a, a curative solution as opposed to the traditional, give them a pill every day, get them hooked on it, give them more pills over time, and it's a great you know, cash model. Just a but, not, but it doesn't cure or anything, yeah. 
Correct. Correct. So, um, you know, that's really what got us that, that there's new neural pathways being formed just from one experience is absolutely mind blowing. I mean, that is unbelievable. That is a game changer for sure. Absolutely. So, um, you know, we started the conversation with Hopkins and then, you know, understood that they had an ongoing um, clinical study of phase two for smoking cessation, looking at a much larger patient population. Um, and what this is looking at is 100, 100 patients. Um, and what they did is they reduced it from three experiences down to a single macrodose. And they, they paired it against what's, you know, basically the gold standard. So in this case, nicotine patch. Identical cognitive behavioral therapy across both, um, both treatments. And actually, Dr. Matt Johnson, who's our lead PI, just recently, um, just recently um, talked about the, the interim results at the Wonderland Miami Psychedelics Conference. And what that showed is um, at 12 months, 59% completely abstinent on a, on a single macrodose, comparatively speaking to the nicotine patch, which is in the low 20s. And I think that the reason why the nicotine patch was, was successful is because the cognitive behavioral therapy in our protocols are, is so good. Right. The nicotine patch in their, in their clinical trials is in the single digits at 12 months. It's, it's not effective, right? And you see the same thing across all of the other available um, treatment modalities currently available for, for smoking succession and really, for that matter, addiction. Very, very low success rates and definitely not durable success rates. These are temporary. As soon as they get off the pill um, or the patch or whatever it is, the, the cravings kind of you know come back. So that really got us interested and we started working with with Hopkins, ended up partnering with them um, and designed what, what's now getting ready to launch Q1 of, uh, of next year, we believe, which is a seamless 2-3 study. So basically a 2B slash 3 study combined into one study. It's a really efficient kind of uh, creative study that that compresses your, your time to, to market significantly. And basically to qualify, you need to be able to show, you know, significant evidence that um, what you're doing is going to be effective. And this really got concreted recently um, that what we chose to do with smoking secession, um, you know, is, is, a, is a, a good indication for psychedelics as a starting point when NIDA, um, which is you know, the federal government that regulate drug and addiction, um, which is funded by the NIH, provided a $4 million grant to Matt Johnson um, who's our lead PI for a concurrently run smoking secession study that's using our drug as well, um, based off his grant application that he submitted, you know, well over a year ago. It's the first time in, in 50 years, five wow. zero, 50 years that the federal government has supplied funding for the use of psychedelics for a therapeutic use. So for us, this was, you know, absolutely a validator and, and, and a huge game changer. So something that got us um, even more excited than, than we already were. So, you know, that's, the first generation and, and our smoking secession protocol. So like I kind of stated earlier in, uh, in, the, the, uh, in the talk is that we look at that as a first generation, a stepping stool and kind of our first to market. So we believe we'll have that, that product to market as early as 2024 um, and actually you know, applying that to, to patients. But we have a Myco004 product um, which is a, a new chemical entity, an NCE that carries several layers of, of, of patent protection um, that we've made significant improvements. We have an incredible science team. Um, we have our director of medicinal chemistry. His name is Dr. Denton Hoyer. Um, he just retired recently as the director of small molecule at the, um, at the Drug Discovery Corps unit at, at Yale Medical Center. Before that, he spent 
about three decades at Pfizer and Novartis and a number of, of wow. other companies designing small molecules. But considering what are the, one of the top in the world for, for designing small molecules, in conjunction with our, our chief science officer, Rob Roscoe, and then we have an exclusive partnership out of the University of Alberta, which is ranked top 15 in the world for drug discovery, um, that gives us, you know, carte blanche access. And we have about 20 PhDs up there um, that are working on, you know, improving these molecules, bringing them to fruition, doing our, our bench top chemistry, our in vivo studies, et cetera. And our lead candidate for a second generation is Myco004. So what we've done with this molecule is we've taken psilocin, so the active metabolite of psilocybin. So the way that your body metabolizes psilocybin, psilocybin is a starting molecule. Your body metabolizes it through the liver. It converts it automatically into the active metabolite called psilocin. And that's actually what's psychoactive, right? Psilocybin is not psychoactive until it converts into psilocin. But psilocin is incredibly unstable. So if you think of, of psychedelic mushrooms and those that know about it, there's always a bluing if you pinch it, right? You squeeze it. That's the degradation of psilocin. So it's incredibly unstable, very hard to apply to a pharmaceutical drug because you need the shelf stuff. Oh, yeah. So we've been able to change the molecule to have over 12 months of, of shelf stability on psilocin, the actual active metabolite. So the onset time is incredibly fast. We've also been able to make it skin permeable. So it's deliverable on a, on a patch. So it bypasses your liver, bypasses that as well. So the onset time is incredibly rapid. And then we've been able to reduce the half-life down to about a two-hour start-to-finish experience time, which is obviously much more scalable. Um, it requires much less infrastructure. And the goal kind of overall is to eliminate this whole notion of psychedelic clinics and eliminate the psychedelics of the whole thing and make it as something that your traditional therapist, your traditional doctor are subscribe, you know, prescribing to their, their patients as kind of a frontline form of treatment. And that can be provided at the already existing therapy office that you go to rather than having to go to a specific, unique kind of psychedelic clinic. Sure. So eventually that's where we want to get. And kind of this is our first step into that. And then, you know, long story short, I know we're running short on time, you know, behind that we have um, a significant amount of second generation library of molecules that are MDMA analog, carry shorter half-life um, improvements on psilocybin and a number of, of different improvements. Wow, that's uh, unbelievable what, what you guys are doing. Obviously you have a, an all-star group of, of researchers and PhDs working on this. And the fact that you can make it, you know, kind of short, sustainable, scalable, and you know, and, and with a good shelf life, it is extremely powerful because I mean, you make it almost surgical, right? Versus going on this long trip, it's like you can control the the the, the barriers around it. Correct. So, and then what you know, what do you see as the future? You know, five years from now, do you see you know the the, the psilocybin and these other therapeutics just nationally being used to help cure uh, a lot of these these ailments or you think it's going to be like a 15, 20 year run? No, I think I think much, much, much faster than that. Right. You have maps already in phase three. You have Compass just put out their phase two B data. So they'll move into phase three relatively quickly. Um, but then I think it's going to be, you know, that's the first progression. It's a learning curve um, and getting, you know, you have you have two different kind of things of, of the coin and something that I haven't talked about um, and we'll touch on is, is our technology platform, Mindly. Um, but you have this kind of, you know, Two different phases so you have the first which will be fda approval and then you have kind of the adoption from the general public because it's so taboo it's you know it's just so unique it's going to yeah. take 
a while for that, you know, for individuals to understand like, okay, I actually want to go through this experience. And the catalyst to that, I think, is going to be the medical community, the general medical community, not a niche part, but the general medical community adopting it as a legitimate form of treatment. And that takes good players, it takes great data, that takes really good um, kind of unique infrastructure. But I think that will you know, be kind of a curve and something that we've done to, to aid in that is launched MindLeap, which is a technology platform that originally started off as kind of fixing another problem, which is the scalability in this treatment. So if you look at the protocols um, of Compass's treatments, of our treatments, you know, seven tenths or eight tenths or nine tenths of the equation are one-on-one -on -one interaction with therapists that you're not under any influence of any substances, right? And Historically speaking, those have been done in person, but there's no reason for them to be done in person, you know, in, in, in person, because geographically speaking, now and currently, and it'll grow over time, I, you know, I hope, um, but the, the, air, the locations that you can receive this treatment is very limited, right? So people have to travel, and it's unrealistic to expect people with normal life jobs, et cetera, to travel large amounts of distances, you know, once a week or, you know, sometimes twice a week, et cetera, over 13 weeks or whatever, right? So. You have to make those meetings, I think, remote. So we created a HIPAA-compliant telehealth platform by the name of, of MindLeap that aggregates trained professionals in psychedelic integration. Now we have over 150 of them under one roof. Um, and then we also introduced a media platform um, that, amongst other things, has you know very digestible conversations with the world's top professionals. So these are from Yale, these are from Johns Hopkins, Imperial College, um, a number of different collaborators, a lot of our scientists and, and other people's scientists, you know, talking about what are these molecules, how do they interact with the brain, what works for what, what can I expect, why is it working, you know, et cetera. So you can give kind of the general consumer digestible information that they can understand that these are safe, efficacious, how they work, what to expect, right. uh, where I can go, you know, et cetera. So, you know, hopefully that will aid in that, that kind of learning curve process and then additionally we also have a number of kind of ancillary services so sleep meditations um, guided meditations um, addiction services etc that, that, that are all on the application so your users and your watchers can can go to um, you know the Apple App Store or the iOS App Store and and um, the Android store as well and download mindleap so it's m-i-n-d-l-e-a-p mindleap it's, it's so that's available great. right now 100% yeah we have you know, now it's 50,000 downloads. So we're, we're, we're growing and um, rapidly, but we, uh, we just launched a new and improved and we're constantly iterating. We built all the technology um, with our in-house um, development team. So it's a very, very secure, very well thought out, very, um, you know, solid platform. I think the leading platform in the space for sure. Powerful, powerful. And so are you guys uh, public or are you private right now? We're public. So we trade on uh, right now the NEO exchange, which is, one of the tier one exchanges in, in Canada under this, the stock symbol MYCO, MYCO. Um, we have a sublisting in the US, but we're actually going NASDAQ Q1 of, of next year. Um, and that will be under MYCO as well. So we already have our, our NASDAQ symbol um, reserved, and, and that will be MYCO in the States coming here soon. Congratulations, man! What what a what a powerful story! Unbelievable, you know, uh, research and, and production that you guys are doing. It's going to help a ton of people in in uh, in the U.S. and across the world, really. So, congratulations to you and the team at Midasin. You guys are doing some amazing stuff, buddy. You have an amazing story. You are a game changer, absolutely. 
And so wishing you all the best uh, in, in your endeavors with your team. And, and hopefully we'll see you soon, uh, maybe here in Miami uh, sometime on your way back to Colorado from Puerto Rico. I <laughs> uh, look forward to it and happy holidays to, uh, to you and yours as well. Okay. Thank you. All right. Take care, guys. If you loved what you heard in today's episode of Game Changers, please subscribe and rate us. The lessons and the stories in these podcasts are immensely valuable. So I invite you to share them with a friend who needs to hear it. You may end up being a game changer in their lives.